This is Anchored in Christ, the sermon podcast that gives you hope in the gospel as an anchor for your soul. Brought to you from Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. The second reading today comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests, serving our God, and they were. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, singing with full voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, singing, to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Well, good morning, Old South Church family. It's great to be with you here this morning. I've had the chance to uh, tune in online through most to uh, tune in online through most of the sermon series with you. So it's uh, very special for me to get to be here in person and online with all of you. This is our last day on the series through the Lord's Prayer, and I don't know if it occurred to you, but it occurred to me this week that the Lord's Prayer is probably the set of words that have been most spoken throughout all of history. And if that wasn't reason enough to want to study in depth the Lord's Prayer, then the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ gave it to us should be enough. Jesus gave us, his church, this prayer, both for us to say back, to pray back to God, 
and to use as a model for every other prayer we say and lift up to God. So as we study the last line, what the Lord Jesus has to teach us, his church, for how we should approach God in prayer. Now our passage today is going to teach us three things about the aim of prayer. First, the reality of the kingdom. Second, our opposition to the kingdom. And then third, God's gracious invitation to the kingdom. So the reality, our opposition, and then the invitation to God's kingdom. So first, this passage teaches us about the inescapable reality of God's kingdom. Now, we're reading from Revelation, and yet our prayers from the Gospels So you might be wondering, why Revelation? Well, I'm sure by now, and by this point in the sermon series, most, if not all of you, have memorized this last line of the Lord's Prayer. But if you flip to the Gospel of Matthew or Luke, you might be surprised, Luke, you might be surprised that it's not actually in the text. It might be in the footnote. And that's because this line of the Lord's Prayer was probably added by early Christians as a fitting conclusion to the Lord's Prayer. And I think it's appropriate and fitting for us as well to use it because it captures so many truths that we see in Scripture. So we're in Revelation today because I think it captures very well the truth in this line of the prayer. Well, you might be thinking still, okay, Ben, I get it. Like, Revelation shows us that God has a kingdom, that he's king, but is it really practical? Like, I'm not convinced that we're going to have any practical takeaway from a vision of heaven. I mean, what good could that be? And if you were thinking that, I would just humbly reply saying, actually, humbly reply saying, actually, this vision is one of the most practical parts of Scripture you can have. Well, why is that? Well, Hope and I love to watch movies, and there's a uh, movie series out right now that you may have heard of called Marvel. It's the superheroes with Captain America and Iron Man and Thor. And this summer in COVID, Hope and I have been re-watching their Marvel movies. And as I get to know the characters more and more, it's really interesting to see how they develop over time. Now, one of the main characters is Tony Stark, Iron Man, and he is a total playboy and he loves to get by on his intelligence and on his uh, weapons company, and life for him is all about him. But then, as these movies go on and on, he begins to see that what he thought was reality was really just a little universe that far exceeded anything he could have expected or dreamed of. And as Tony Stark began to see more and more of what reality really was like, he began to change. And instead of being the self-absorbed, selfish man who was just in it for himself, he became a man who was willing to risk the ultimate sacrifice to save the entire universe. Or you might ask, why? Why did Tony change? And I would offer, it was because he began to see reality as it was. And although these Marvel movies are fictional, and they're just entertainment, there's something about them that resonates with us, that we can understand. And that's what this passage in Revelation is getting at. 
when we begin to see true reality, when we begin to see that there is a God of the universe who is king, that's a God of the universe who is king. That changes everything. And if, if it doesn't change everything, then we don't get it. So this vision of heaven is immensely practical because it, sh it should change everything about who we are and how we live. So what is this true reality that we see? Well, despite what we think and how we live and even how we might want the world to be, this passage shows us that God is king. Now, you may have noticed that God the Father was never mentioned in chapter 5. Instead, God was referenced each time as the one who sits on the throne. And it's kind of like how when Hope and I were in the UK this past year, Brits would sometimes refer to the queen as the crown. They would refer to Queen Elizabeth specifically in her essence as the monarch. And in this one who sits enthroned over the entire universe. So this passage, Revelation, shows us that God is king. He's enthroned, that the kingdom and the power and the glory are God's. Now, those are words that we often repeat in the church, kingdom and glory and power. So let's just take a few minutes to unpack what these terms mean. Hope and I were in Edinburgh, Scotland for uh, most of this past year before COVID hit, and I was studying at the Divinity School. And the Divinity School just so happened to be within a stone's throw of the castle. So every day I was treated to a walk as I ascended the hill that allowed me to take in the splendor of the Edinburgh castle every single day. So when I think of castles, uh, I think of kingdoms. I also think of uh, the realms or the people of uh, the realms or the people that constitute a kingdom. And, and perhaps these are some of the connotations that, that you might have too. But when scripture talks about kingdom, we see that it's actually talking about more than just uh, the people and the land or a castle or a realm. Kingdom is actually a word that refers to God's authority, his sovereignty, his right to rule. So when we say that the kingdom is God's, we say that you alone have the right to rule. You alone are a king over all. And then power. And power goes hand in hand with kingdom because power is how God is able to do anything and everything. Power is how God takes his right to rule and applies it, is how he enacts it. And then glory. Glory is a multifaceted term in scripture. But it's not really a, a word that but it's not really a, a word that we use very much today. I mean, maybe you go out some morning to uh, see the sunrise and you say, that's a glorious sunrise. Uh, on my wedding day, I thought I'm marrying the most glorious bride. But other, other than these occasions, we don't really use the, the word glory. But in the Bible, there's a deep meaning. And on the one hand, like a sunrise and like a bride, Glory can talk about a, a physical manifestation, how God is radiant, how he is this fiery manifestation that blows away any concept that we have. He is so beautiful. But glory also means weight. The Hebrew word for glory is uh, kavod, not COVID, <laughs> kavod. And it means weight and heaviness. 
And in the same way that you might say he has a heavy responsibility, honor, dignity. And we also see glory used as power and might, that when God comes in his glory, he's going to vanquish all of his enemies. So we can see that kingdom and power and glory are overlapping concepts that together, when we affirm them of God, we're saying, we're confessing together that God, you alone are all-powerful. You alone are beautiful. You alone have the right to say how we live our life. So we see first this inescapable true reality behind the curtain that God is king. But then second, this passage shows us that we have an opposition to the kingdom. There's a problem, right? And if you look in the text with me, you'll see uh, right after John has noted that God, or the one who sits on the throne, has a scroll in his hand, a mighty scroll in his hand, a mighty angel proclaims with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Right there, there is no one in heaven or on earth or under the sea, anywhere in the entire cosmos, who is able to open this scroll. And as a consequence, John starts weeping. Now, this is Revelation, and uh, Pastor Sarah is going to begin a, a Bible study, and it's, I'd love to be there because this can be a really tough book to understand. What, what is this scroll, and, and why is he weeping? I mean, it, we're kind of taken aback, like, take a chill pill, it'll be okay. But if we really understood what the scroll was, we'd be weeping too. This scroll contains the promises and the expectation of God's kingdom and its full manifestation. It is the promises from the Old Testament on of all that God has promised to, to do for his people contained in this scroll. While God is king and he has all power and all glory, it hasn't been fully revealed yet. And yet, it will be. So John realizes that until someone is found who is worthy, this isn't going to be reality. So one commentator describes why John was weeping like this. These are not tears of the prophet thwarted in his expectation to sing into the future. His frustration goes deeper than that. Until the scroll is opened, God's purposes remain not merely unknown, but unaccomplished. John weeps with disappointment because the hope of God's action appears to be indefinitely postponed. John weeps over the delay of God's kingdom. And I wonder if we do as well. I don't know if you know what this past Friday was, but it was the 57th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. And in that speech, he really encapsulates what it means to have this longing and this desire to see a future that is so unlike what it is now. Speaking of reconciliation, he says, I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. But he goes on to an even greater vision of what the future can be, drawing from scripture. And he says, I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain be made low, the rough places will be made plain, 
and the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory, we might say the kingdom and the power and the glory shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Do we weep over the delay of God's kingdom? I know I don't, not like I should. But this passage shows me that that should be our desire. But what would it look like to live by this kingdom? What would it look like to not only desire it, but to be a part of it? And that's why we looked at the Beatitudes. Because the Beatitudes are one description of the transformation that happens in us when we see true reality. If Tony Stark could become playboy to superhero, then think what God could do in any of us to make us into someone completely new. And the Beatitudes give us a list of qualities for those who will inherit the kingdom. And you can see that list in Matthew 5 or back in your bulletin. And we, we see examples like, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, some of us might be used to hearing these Beatitudes, but if we just look at them anew, they're kind of strange. Right? Like the meek, the weak, the criers are going to inherit the earth. What about finders, keepers, losers, weepers? Right? How are they going uh, to, to get this? I thought nice guys finish last. But Jesus is describing those who truly pray for and acknowledge that God is king. So let's just look at those first three briefly. To be poor in spirit is to recognize that in ourselves, we do nothing in and of ourselves. One pastor described a similar thought to me by saying, the only thing it takes to be a disciple of Jesus is need. It's to recognize that we can't do it on our own. We can't be independent. We have to be dependent on God. Or what about the second one, those who mourn? That's to realize that the problem isn't just that we can't be independent. The problem is that we have sin that we need to weep over. That's why we have a prayer of confession every week. That's why last week, Pastor Sarah talked about the dangers of sin when we succumb to temptation. And how about the meek? Being meek means to be humble. It means first we recognize that I have to be dependent on God. And then it means that I realize that my main problem is that I'm a sinner. Then it means that I realize that my main problem is that I'm a sinner, that I don't just do acts of sin, but I desire wrong. I don't desire God and his kingdom. I desire my kingdom. But then to be meek and to be humble means that once you recognize that, you can then acknowledge that I'm the problem. I love how uh, G.K. Chesterton, uh, you might know a 20th century English critic, responded once to a, a magazine that was pulling a bunch of well-known people in the day uh, with one question. What is the problem of the universe? And Chesterton responded with just one line. And he said, 
the problem with the universe is me. Signed, G.K. Chesterton. It's humility. Do you want to be this kind of person? Do you want to be the kind of person who lives out the Beatitudes? The kind of person like Martin Luther person like Martin Luther King Jr. or G.K. Chesterton who had the humility to recognize I am the problem. I have a sin problem. That our world has a problem and that the only solution is for God. To be able to work out of that like so many Christians uh, before us who were able to take these promises and to live them out. Do we want to be that kind of person? Or do we want to build our sandcastles on things in this world? Build our sandcastles on health or our jobs or maybe our families. All good things, but things that crumble when COVID or politics or other uh, daily occurrences in life get in the way. The only kingdom that is forever and ever is God's. So we've seen the opposition to the kingdom. And now finally, this passage shows us God's, God's invitation to the kingdom. Because there is one who is worthy. There is one who lived out perfectly the Beatitudes. There is one who has the qualities of the kingdom. One who, though sinless, suffered for sin. One who didn't just seek reconciliation with his fellow man, but sought and accomplished reconciliation with God. In verse 5 in our passage, one of the elders says to John, Do not weep. See the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll. And then in, in verse 6, John looks for this lion, high and, and low. Where, where is this lion? And what does he see? He sees a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered. Jesus lived perfectly and fully for God's kingdom. He conquered the evil one. He has vanquished sin and death, but he didn't do it by coming in and trying to achieve it his way, by taking power to himself, but he did it by submitting to God the Father. He did it by letting death think it won. He did it through his own death. So then in verses 9 and 10, the heavenly beings respond to what Christ has done with a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slaughtered and by your blood, you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them into a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. For those who trust in Christ, we don't have to depend on our own efforts to enter into God's kingdom. We can be humble. We can recognize that we fall that we fall short, that we don't desire, that I don't desire God's kingdom like I ought to, like I should. But that Christ has forgiven us if only we receive it. So because Jesus left his heavenly realm and didn't force obedience, but came to seek the lost and to serve, he's given us the power to believe in him and turn from our self-made sandcastles and to turn to God who makes us kings. And we also see the one who, though sinless, became our sacrifice so that we could be made right with God and become his priests so that all of us 
having trusted in Jesus, can go out and share this news of the kingdom with others. Because Jesus submitted to death, we will reign in God's kingdom when it fully come. We can be like those who are meek and humble like, humble like lambs, and we, can, and we can be like lions who work fiercely for justice and for uh, God's ways in this life. So finally, with the angels we confess, worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And with every creature we confess to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. We confess together for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for giving us your word, for this vision that makes all the difference in how we live our life. When we see true reality that you are king and we are not, and although we fall short, you love us so much that you came down and you rescued us, we thank you. And we ask us and believe this more and more so that we could live this out in your spirit's power, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. If you'd like more information about our historic church or you'd like to find out more about the gospel of Jesus, please visit our website at oldsouthnbpt.org. The peace of Christ be with you.